I'm going to ask that you'll take your Bibles with me this morning and turn once again to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, as we conclude looking at the same parable, we were doing pretty well on the parables and now we've looked at this one for, this will be week number three, there won't be a week number four. Um, but it is a fascinating thing. Um, I don't know if you've ever uh, known that there was a day of, well, I'm sure that you have, actually, I shouldn't say that. I know you, I know you, you have known what it's like to have a day of evaluation or a day of judgment coming. Um, I was talking to uh, a young lady in my Sunday school class this morning who got her driver's uh, permit this week. And, you know, when you get your driver's permit, there's, you know, at some point there's going to be an evaluation that I'm, I'm, get, I'm getting ready for. Um, I like sports. Um, I like to coach. It's a fun time when the season starts. But I feel a certain amount of pressure when you have those opening practices and things look so bad. Because the kids aren't thinking about it, but as a coach, you know, in three or four weeks, we're going to start playing games, and I sure hope it doesn't look this bad when we start doing that, uh, because there's a day of evaluation, there's a day of judgment uh, coming, and I can't imagine, I, I really, I'm not trying to ramble here, I can't imagine what it must be like from Jesus' perspective as he's on the earth teaching. I can't imagine this. Because Jesus is God in the flesh. He knows there is a day of judgment coming. But more than that, he knows that he is going to be the person that people stand before in judgment. Like, he knows that. And yet, he's speaking to people who are either oblivious to this fact or do not seem to be taking it very seriously. And there's not a small thing on the line. Like, he's not judging them to see if there's going to be a raise. You know, like, you're going to get a better a promotion or something. It's not that. No, he knows that people are going to stand before him and the judgment is going to either be peace with God and eternity in heaven or justice from God, and e eternal suffering. And so that's, that is a scary thought. That's, there's not much more sober than that to think about. And yet, you know how it is to live life. I mean, I say that right now, and somewhere in the back of my mind, I'm thinking about what the agenda is this afternoon, uh, the stuff that I've got going on, what I'm looking forward to, what I've got to knock out... He, and he's talking to people who are just living living lives, man. They're just they're just they're just going about things, getting kids here and moving things here and storing up here. They're not they are not in a frame of mind to hear someone talk to them about a day of judgment and eternity. And I am sure that many of you can relate to that. Even when you wake up and you come to church and you sit down and you. We are so consumed by things that deserve our attention that we are just not often prepared to be confronted with deep, consequential things. It's not that we don't think they're important, but 
We have to live somewhere in between the most important stuff in the world and the most mundane stuff in the world. Like, we've got to live somewhere in between there and get, get stuff done. And that's who Jesus is talking to, and yet he's, he, his time is short on the earth. I mean, if you know anything about the Gospels, there's not like a hundred chapters in each of the Gospels. We're almost to the end of Matthew's Gospel when we read this parable, which means we're almost to the point when Jesus is going to be crucified and he's going to rise from the grave. His time is short. He's almost out of time. Um, I know we're going to read in verse 14 in just a second. I promise I'll be quick moving through sermon points this morning. But if you look ahead to verse 31, you can see where his mind is. Because in verse 31... As soon as he's done telling what we're about to read, this parable, he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. You see, where he's, what, you see what he's thinking about. So we are not, we are probably, what is it, March 3rd? We are probably not in a frame of mind to think about these things. We are, uh, some of us I'm sure are thinking about the fact that it's going to get up near 70 degrees today and 70 degrees tomorrow, and some of us are thinking about how well we drove with our permits uh, yesterday, and some of us are thinking about whatever. I mean, we are not prepared for this, and yet that's how life is. Whether we are prepared for it or not, this is a reality, and I cannot imagine what it must have been like for the Lord Jesus going from place to place having to speak to this reality over and over and over again to people who over and over and over again are just like out of curiosity coming out to see what's going on. You, I, I can't imagine that. Um, <laughs> and so he tells this story. And I know we've done the story twice. I'm just going to, I'll read the verses. We won't go through everything again. I've got one point left, so it's going to flow well with the short time that I have in light of the Lord's Supper. But well, I'm, I'm going to just read the passage to you. And as you're listening now, you have to try to imagine Jesus trying to get people's attention to focus for a little bit and think about something that is extremely important even though they're probably figuring out how much longer is this going to be and what are we doing when this is over and the but little you know i don't know what a good jewish little jonah has to go to the bathroom and like whatever else it is and jesus is trying to speak through all of that noise about something that is the most important thing and so he tells this story it begins in verse 14 for the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. Likewise, he who had received two gained Two more also. But he who had received one went and dug a hole in the ground and hid his Lord's money. And after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received the five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. 
His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done. Good and faithful servant, you have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, There you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed, so you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming I would have received back my own with interest, so take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has More will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, if you are joining us this morning and you missed the last two weeks, there is no possible way I can re-preach all of that and be done before 1 or 1.30. So we're not going to do that. There may be parts of this that you just are not following So stick with me. But the story is simple. A guy who owns a lot, a lord, a master, is going on a trip. So he divides up talents of money. Talent was a form of weight. So certain amount of pounds of money. Um, So he may give, you know, 10 pounds of gold and silver to buy and trade with the one guy and then five to another and then one to another. He does it according to the person's ability. And then he goes on his trip. And after a while, he comes back. Now, It was incumbent upon the people whom he had given all this stuff to that while he was gone, they were supposed to carry on with business as usual, which is, I don't know about you, but that's pretty common. Even when we leave the house, Alice and I will say, hey, while we're gone, do this and make sure this gets done. And when we come back, we expect it to be done. We expect things to carry on as if we were there conducting business ourselves. And so after a long time, the Lord of the Master comes back and he checks and he calls into account the people whom he'd given this great responsibility for a term of evaluation. What is your performance like? How are we going to evaluate this? And the first two guys say, look, this is what you gave us to manage. We carried on with business just like we'd been doing before you left. We were faithful, even in your absence, to keep on doing what you wanted us to do. And because this is a profitable business, that's why we've got all this money in the first place. We did well, and here's your profit. We, and, and they are told, well done. He rewards them. You're going to have a lot more to manage, which means a lot more personal, you know, wealth and income and bonus and, and uh, a lot more reward for them. And then he, give, he leaves them with the final word of evaluation. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, we don't talk like that very much, but what he's saying is, I'm so pleased with you that you are moving from um, an, an untested servant 
to someone who's come through this evaluation, and I'm going to make sure that your life is an expression of how pleased I am with what you've done. You're going to, you're going to experience my joy in your life. I'm going to make sure that you're happy. I'm going to, you are going to live a happy, I'm going to give you a happy life because of how well you've done. That's the idea here. But with the third servant, he doesn't do that. Instead, and he gives his reasons, he evidently doesn't think very highly of his master. He said, you know, you reap where you don't sow, meaning, you know, you take advantage of other people sometimes. That's what I mean, you're supposed to reap where you sow, not, not where someone else has sown, someone else plants. And, and he says, you know, you, I, I was afraid when you left me with this stuff. Even though, you know, you'd shown me what to do, and I've done this with you for a while now. So here's what I did. When you left, I, I buried it, I hid it so that, you know, I wouldn't lose it on accident. I wouldn't make you angry. And now that you're back here, you can, you can have what, uh, what you left me with. It's all here. Everything you gave me is right here. And the problem with this is the guy was supposed to be busy trying to do what his master had given him, you know, the money to do. And instead, whatever he'd done with his life, it hadn't been that. Let's say his life was to go to the market every day and buy and sell oil. And that, that's, that, that's what his job was. And he'd been doing that with his master for a long time. And now the master's going on a trip and he gives him a little bit of money. He says, look, I'm going away for a while. Keep buying and selling oil. Every day, get yourself out of bed. Get dressed, just like what you've been doing. Go to the marketplace. Take the money that I'm giving you. According to your own ability, you can handle this. And do your best to buy and sell and, and, and trade just like you've done with me. And when I come back... We'll see how, it, how it's gone. You know, there's no big threat like, man, if you, if you make a mistake or if something goes wrong here, when I come back, I'm going to let you. But that's what was in the guy's mind. The guy had such a low opinion of his master, he was afraid. What if I blow it, you know? So he hides in the ground, and a small part of us might say, well, that's, you know, there's a little bit of wisdom in that. After all, I didn't lose anything. But the problem is, if this guy had not spent all of this time while his master was away, working and buying and selling and trading like he was supposed to be doing, then what was he doing with himself? Was he just sleeping in every day? I mean, he had a job. This is the idea here. He was employed at a task. And apparently, whatever he's been doing, are his own devices, not what his master gave him to do. He's just been going out doing whatever he wants. I don't know what you do when you're on vacation, but when, when I'm on vacation, I don't think a lot about what the boss wants me to do. I do what I want to do. And here the guy's decided I'm not going to do what I'm supposed to do. And so whatever he's filling his time with, he gets the evaluation, you wicked and lazy servant. That's what it means. The guy is a servant, meaning he's being paid or he's being compensated. He's being provided for on a daily basis. He's not an entrepreneur. He's not out there making his own ends meet. He's being paid a salary or a living or a wage or, or you know, food and shelter, whatever it is. And he's continued to take that the whole time his master's gone. He's continued to be paid whatever compensation looked like for him. But he's not been doing what he's supposed to be doing all this time. None of it. And so he's wicked for taking all that money and not doing the job. And he's lazy because he didn't even try. And his reason is, well, I was afraid. And what his master says is, that's a terrible reason. You know, he doesn't say, you liar, you weren't afraid, you just wanted a long vacation. Maybe the guy was lying. Maybe he was genuinely afraid. I don't know. But it's a lousy reason. 
he should have tried to do what he was supposed to do. Or at least quit the job and retired himself from the situation, walked away saying, look, if I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to keep calling myself a servant of this master. And so we see the situation, we see the performance, and we see the evaluation. Now, we have already made three points, and I'm not going to remake them all. I'll just tell you what they are. The, the first point Jesus is making is that he's going to return. He is like the Lord who is going to return. That's why... Verse 31, the very next verse says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory, he, Jesus is going to return. Um, it's important that we don't live our lives oblivious to the reality that there is going to be a moment when Jesus returns and we stand before Him and we are evaluated. And it would be very easy to do that. It would be very easy to get caught up in everything else all of our own devices, but Jesus is very concerned that we consider that we live with the understanding that He is the Lord and we are the servants and He is going to return to hold us to an account. Second point we made, Jesus has called us to obey and work. To obey and work. Um, it is not enough to come up with your own agenda here. You cannot call yourself a Christian and claim, I'm going to heaven when I die because I believe in Jesus. You, you can't do that if your life is not marked by obedience and your life is not marked by the work that He's commissioned you to do. You can't do that. Now, how do you know what work He's... Well, that's why Jesus calls people to be disciples. The word disciple means student or learner. That's presumably why you're here this morning. To learn what you're supposed to do so that we can go out and do it, or to be reminded of what you're supposed to do, so we can go out and do it. That's why we study the Bible. That's why we pray. That's why we sing the songs that we sing. These songs actually have messages in them. They're not just pretty-sounding songs. You may not think they're pretty at all. That's beside the point. They have messages in them because we are disciples of Jesus, and we're supposed to be learning what Jesus has told us to do, to live the way Jesus has told us to live. Why? Because we are supposed to obey and do the work that Jesus has called us to do. And the third point that we've made so far is while we're doing this work, while we're living the way, we don't have to worry like this third servant. We don't have to be afraid if the results don't seem as great as we think they should look. Because God is the one who gives the increase. And this was the majority of last week. In, in other words, if we were to take the parable a step further and say that the guy who had the five talents went out and traded with the five talents, and when the Lord came back, he only had six all this time, he increased it by one. Or he only had five. Or it felt to him as he only had four. The idea was, look, I gave you the five talents according to my evaluation of what you were capable of. Did you work hard at it? Did you be, were you faithful to do what I told you to do? And look, this servant may just have to take this guy's word for it, or maybe he talks to other people, and maybe he calls up a, a fellow business guy and be like, hey, look, Bill said he was out there working really hard. He barely made any money. What was it like? You know, but in again, that's the story with Jesus. He knows what we're doing. He knows when we are being obedient and working hard and being faithful to his commands, not to our own ideas, but to, he knows. He's going to give a fair evaluation. Um, we may want to see, oh, I, I wish God would do this in my life. I wish God would do this in my life. I wish I'd see this in my life. But I have those things too. I don't think you can be a Christian for any length of time and not have those kinds of thoughts. 
But God's the one who's going to cause the increase or not. And I can't re-preach this even though I feel myself going down that path. We did this last week. So the final point for this week. Um, and you can't miss it. The, the lazy and the wicked are judged at the return of the Lord. Um, it's not a fun point, but it is the final point, and it's, it's very serious to the Lord because He knows a day of judgment is coming, and we often just live oblivious to that, and I'm guilty of that too. Just too many things going on to think about this. Too many competing desires inside of me. Being pulled in too many directions. But we are to be reminded that there is a judgment coming for those who do not live faithfully. Um, the wicked and the lazy may be very wealthy. Um, that could be. Um, if you think of the story of the rich man and Lazarus, if you know the story, he's a very, very wealthy guy. Threw parties for himself all the time. He couldn't run out of money if he tried. And there was a poor beggar who stayed outside his house. And, you know, the beggar would hope to get scraps from the rich guy's table. And they both died. And the rich guy doesn't go to heaven. And I know this seems like a, ba a very basic point. Like, well, yeah, we know that. We're not rich guys or whatever. I understand. But this, was a, this is a countercultural idea. Because there is the idea that if people are wealthy, it means God has blessed them in their lives means God has given them great wealth in their lives. And if he's blessed them, then he must be pleased with them. And he must be satisfied with them. But the story of the rich man and Lazarus turns that upside down. This was a big deal. In, in, in Roman culture, they even had a god of wealth. A god of, you know, they had lots of gods in the Roman pantheon of gods that everybody's supposed to work. The god of wealth was, was a god named, I've got to read this now, Juno Moneta. And from that name, we get the Latin word that we get mo money from. Money and monetization. Um, so from this idea of the God of wealth. Um, so you think about this. Just because someone's wealthy, even you, say you're doing well. You get a big bonus. Or you get a big raise. Or whatever it is. Just because you have wealth does not mean, wow, see, God's pleased with me. Everything's great. No, no, it's not that simple. Who is God pleased with? Those who by faith learn how he wants them to live and obey. That's what the Bible teaches. Disciples who follow Jesus. That's, that's whom he is pleased with. It's not, well, man, it must be really what. And it's, it's also the same for those who are hardworking. Those who are hard. We have some incredibly hard workers in our congregation. Men and women who work very hard inside the home. Outside the home. Sometimes I'll see what people are involved with and it's almost overwhelming to, to think of the number of things that, that people are doing and working at for all different kinds of reasons. We have very hard workers. We have mothers who work very hard. We have fathers who work very hard. We have young people who are working very hard and a lot of hours to try to get ahead so that they can... I mean, we have some very hard workers in our church. And people tend to look at hardworking or successful people and think they've really got it figured out. But God has not called us to work toward our own empire. He has called us to do His work. Look, it could be in the story that whatever this guy who buried this talent in the sand, this commission that he'd been given, maybe he went out and that whole time his Lord was gone, maybe he was working real hard at something. 
Maybe he wasn't sleeping in all day and lying around the house and going fishing for fun. I don't know. He could have been working his butt off at something. But he wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. So, look, I commend people who work hard. But working hard alone is not enough. And there's this story of the rich fool. And it's in Luke chapter 12. And it's this guy who's a very successful guy. And he works very hard. And he has a tremendous harvest. And he, he, he says, I'm going to do this with my harvest. I've worked so hard. I'm going to do all this saving with my harvest so that I don't have to work anymore. And that night, he's, he dies. And this is what God says to him in Luke 12, verse 20. And it's very telling. Listen to what, in this story, God said to him, fool. Not because he wasn't hardworking. The guy worked so hard, he was ready to be done working forever. And God says, this guy's a fool. He says, this night, your soul will be required of you. And here's the key. Then, whose will those things be which you have provided? So is, this is Jesus' conclusion of the story, so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You can be very hardworking for your own agenda, but that's not the evaluation you're going you're to face. You're not going to stand before the Lord Jesus and be evaluated based on whatever your agenda was. So the guy's called a fool. Um, also, someone could be very passionate about what they're doing. As a matter of fact, Jesus says this to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were not his friends, okay? And here's what he says to them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. That means one, one convert to what, to what you're teaching. You'll go over the land and the sea, which is in ancient times and ancient forms of travel. That's quite a commitment. Just to win one convert to your teaching, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. That's pretty, that's pretty harsh words in Matthew 23, 15 from the Lord Jesus. Some people are very impressed when they see someone who's very passionate about what they're doing. Look how passionate they are about what they're doing. They really have a heart for this. They are really, boy, look how driven they are for this. Uh, when I used to... Um, you know, come across my own performance evaluations. It got to a point where um, one of the people in our company presented me with multiple options. He said, you're at a point where you got to go one way or the other. You can either go towards sales or you can go towards operations. And if you find that a boring topic, so did I. I thought it was boring too. But he really wanted me. You're at a point, you got to choose. And I was like, well... And I'm trying to work through how to make this decision. And he, he looked at me and he said, this is what he asked. Tell me, what are you passionate about? And I thought, it ain't sales or operations. You know, it's, it's neither one of these things. This, I'm not passionate about this whole thing we're doing. I do, it's, uh, you know, I'm not passionate about it. I'm doing this to pay the bills. Right? Uh, the, the, but the idea that passion is supposed to be the guide that what we're passionate about is supposed to be what drives us. Now that can lead to some pretty serious mistakes. Instead, we should ask ourselves, you know, what is the objective of what we're passionate about here? Is this what the Lord Jesus wants me to be doing? Is this what God is passionate 
about. We're coming up upon Easter uh, at the end of this month where we remember the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ at the Passover time. And, and uh, what is that called? But often the passion of Christ. What is Jesus passionate about? Jesus is passionate about doing what the Lord God has commissioned him to do. Which brings us to the question of what did Jesus do in his life? If we are Christians and Jesus is our example, how did he do this? Well, give you a few examples. In Luke chapter 2:49, Jesus is a child, 12 years old, and he is missing, and his parents find him in the temple, and he's asking questions and making points and counterpoints to theological scholars. And when Mary and Joseph find him, they are just relieved to know where he is. And what does he say? He said, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? For whatever else we teach children, and there's a lot of valuable stuff that we got to teach kids, but for whatever else we teach them, we better teach them to be concerned with God the Father's business, with God's agenda, with His work. Um, as a potential Messiah, in John chapter 6, the people are ready to make Jesus king. No one's ever been ready to make me king of anything. Not a thing. But Jesus has an opportunity to be incredibly wealthy and to have a stronghold, even an army, and a whole group of rebellious, you know, Israelites who are sick of being under Roman rule take orders and commands from him. They're ready to make him king. And he tells them, that's not going to happen because I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. At 22 years old, 60 years ago last week, uh, Muhammad Ali beat Sonny Liston to become the heavyweight champion of the world, win the boxing title. It was a big thing. And he said, in his euphoria, after he beat Sonny Liston, he says, I've done shook up the world. I'm king of the world. I'm a bad man. I'm the prettiest thing that ever lived. I shook up the world. That's what he said. 22 years old. I don't even remember what it was like to be 22 years old. I certainly, I certainly never said anything like that. I would have got smacked upside the head if anybody heard me say something. Somebody would have taken matters into their own hands. But here's Muhammad Ali. I'm king of the world. The whole world under his thumb. And it probably was like that for a while. Here is Jesus on the cusp of greatness amongst the people of the world. And he says, I didn't come here for any of that. I came here to do my Father's will, the will of Him who sent me. And here He is speaking and teaching about how to pray. You ever think about how you should pray? Um, here's a common prayer that you can find on the internet. It's called the Prayer of Abundance. And the reason this is common and out there is because the idea you just say this prayer, and here it is. It's not the one on the screen. I'm going to read it to you now. Here's the prayer of abundance. Are you ready? Dear God, I pray for abundance and financial prosperity in my life. Please bless me with resources and opportunities to achieve, and here's the kicker, my financial goals and provide for myself and my loved ones. That's not a prayer. That's not a prayer. Not one that God has any interest in hearing. But Jesus said, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, 
Hallowed be your name. You are holy. You're not like us. You are holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then he asks for something. You know what he asks for? Give us today the food that we need to eat. Your will be done. That's Jesus. And in the Garden of Gethsemane facing the cross. The evening of his arrest. Hours before he will be stripped naked and paraded in front of people, tied to a post in the public square and whipped within an inch of his life, then nailed to a cross and made to stumble his way to Golgotha to be elevated in all of the shame and humility of naked exposure before the world to suffocate to death. Hours before this, here he is praying in the garden, Father, if it is your will, please take this away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That is a faithful servant. If that is the Christ that we serve, how can we possibly call ourselves Christians and not serve the same way? Not be concerned with God's will. Learning, what does God want me to do? How does God want me to live? Is it hard? Yeah, you know, this, this, and this are pretty easy for me right now, but this, this, and this seem really hard. Yes, it's hard. Is it costly? Yes, it's costly. Does it require the discipline like the servant who's got to get himself up out of bed every day and go and do the right thing that he's supposed to? Yes, it requires discipline. And are you going to be encouraged all along the way as you just see prosperity and flourishing and fruit in everything that you do? No. No. You're going to have to do what you do by faith. You're going to have to live this way by faith. Leaving the results in God's hands. Looking toward the return of Christ when you stand before Jesus to hear the words, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Which brings us to the last slide and the last thing I'll say. Um, in verse 21 in the parable and also elsewhere, that's, that's the evaluation for the one who has done well. Enter, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. And here is what the book of Hebrews says about why Jesus went to the cross. It says, we need to, as we struggle through life, by the way, this is Hebrews 12, this is right on the heels of Hebrews 11, which is Hebrews 11 is an account of all the men and women who have lived faithfully before the Lord, suffering even to the point of death. And it climaxes in this, this big crescendo at the end of Hebrews 11 that some have been sawn in half and beheaded, hidden in caves for their lives, but they've been faithful to the Lord, even to the very end. Who, who, people of whom the world was not worthy of, it says in Hebrews 11. And then we turn the page to Hebrews 12 and we read that we're supposed to be faithful to the end. And as we're being faithful, we're supposed to look unto Jesus. That's why he's the example we've talked about this morning. We're trying to look unto Jesus and look at how he lived and look at his life. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. We have an epidemic of unhappiness in the world today. An epidemic of unhappiness. Human beings are very good at finding things that give them shots of pleasure and very bad at finding true and lasting happiness. And even people who think that they have found happiness 
often see it slip through their hands as they approach death and they realize that all that they've built, none of which can be taken with them. But Jesus knew what he was doing when he lived this way. And he did it not out of pity, not out of sad. Yes, he was a man of sorrows because he lived in this world, but he did what he did for the sake of joy. For the sake of joy. Um, much of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament is neglected and forgotten and not dealt with. And much of it exists to distinguish between the pursuits of passions and desires and real wisdom which leads to prosperity and happiness. True prosperity and happiness. Much of, of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are dealing with this is what people think will make them happy and so they go out and live this way and it's foolishness. And if they were wise, they would live this way. That's what we read at the beginning of the service from Ecclesiastes 12. This is Solomon and all of his wealth. Here's the end of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments because God is going to judge the righteous and the wicked and this is everything here. This is what future joy hinges on. So much of the wisdom of the Bible is about finding true happiness. And it goes neglected while people, you know, drink their beers to help them unwind and take their drugs to escape what they're dealing for and, and, and take the dopamine hit to try to make their life seem a little bit better or give themselves over to something that they think they can have a little victory at or just lay down and rest because just a few hours of peace is all I want after going to work all day or give themselves to a hobby or a side gig if I can just be entrepreneurial, if I can build this up, then I won't have to go listen to the man every day or on and on and on. All the different ways people pursue pleasure. But the Bible tells us repeatedly and consistently that the real wisdom that leads to true happiness and contentment in life is found in doing what we've read about in this parable, being faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the end of that road lies joy. At the end of that road lies peace. And that's why in the New Testament we're told that Jesus has become wisdom for us. Because in Jesus, we can find freedom from all of these pursuits that will not fulfill us, that aren't going to last. In Jesus, we can find, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into lasting joy. And only in Jesus, whatever else you build, it ain't going to last. Whatever else you pursue, it's not up for evaluation at the Lord's return. Only what's done for Christ will last. And so we have to be disciples. We have to be learners. We have to think and evaluate through our life. We can't just be zombies, sleepwalking through things. We have to be thoughtful. And we need to be in pursuit of joy that way. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, perhaps neglected in a sermon like this, is how we come to a relationship with you in the first place. And for that, I, I plead for forgiveness and hope that the songs that we have sung and the messages that have otherwise been preached in other Sundays can fill that gap or that void. That faithful Christians can look around them and speak true gospel things to people who need to hear them. But for today, I pray that we will make it our life's ambition to stand before you one day and to be found good and acceptable in your sight. To experience your joy. 
to know peace and to shun all the different false promises that exist in the world today that if you just do this, if we just do this, we'll find happiness. Help us not to be led around like children chasing after candy to the next shiny thing or the next exciting venture, but help us to be focused and wise and deliberate in what we pursue in life so that when your son returns, we can be found worthy of what we've been entrusted to do here. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.